This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. A huge thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. We've got you for an hour of science now. In the studio with me is Dr. Jen. Good morning. Morning, Dr. Shane. Did you realise the sun was out this morning? How good was that? It, uh... It was surprising, but it's now gone. I oh, know, but that's all right. It was there for a little bit. We got to enjoy it, and now we can just you know. just just to be clear, the people who haven't got out of bed yet. Don't don't rush out there because it is gone. So it was brief, but it was beautiful. It was. Chris, K- uh, speaking of brief and beautiful, Chris KP. I'm really brief, but thank you. And can I just say, for people who are still in bed, consider staying there. Yeah, it's pretty it's, good. I was there this morning for hours. Mm. We don't really need to hear about that, thanks, Chris. Not everybody's bed. Right. Just, just your own. own. Yeah, just yeah. my own. Okay, awesome. <laughs> there we go. Anyway, folks, we've got an hour of science for you. We have, uh, we have four guests, actually, today, uh, talking about some amazing things coming up soon, but we're going to start off with some news. Dr. Jen, what is important to you this week? Oh, I didn't pick it on that, cr- oh, that okay. criteria. <laughs> that the criteria? <laughs> what, what vaguely interested you? <clears throat> yeah, that's right. I keep telling you vaguely interested me. No, I think um, a lot of people have heard of this idea of the uncanny valley. It actually came up on air this week when I was with the breakfasters. This idea we we kind of feel a little bit um, uneasy when we come across something that's been designed to look a lot like a human but doesn't actually do a perfect mm, job of it. So, you know, there's animations, whether it's, you know, a computer game, whatever it is, that thing of, oh, you're kind of really human-like, but there's something that's not quite right about you and I don't like it. I know, it's people like eerie. that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you, mate. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. But, not quite right. But this week, Facebook unveiled um, an AI robot that they've trained to actually be able to express human emotions, <laughs> which I know is kind of weird. So basically, it's an animation that's controlled by an artificially intelligent algorithm, and they trained the algorithm on 250 Skype conversations. So, you know, this algorithm... Do they know about that, the Skype conversations? I don't know. Interesting, Interesting. point, mm. yeah. So basically, you can imagine this algorithm is learning by watching two humans interact with one another what all of the microfacial expressions mm. that we go through, whether it's a little nod in agreement, whether it's a blink of surprise, you know, whatever it is, that all of these little, um, these <clears throat> just these little facial expressions mm. that we have. And so this algorithm is learning to mimic them. And it turns out that the algorithm divided the face into 68 different key points. And you can see all these amazing pictures with all of these points, you know, around the eyebrows, yeah. under the eye, all of that. Um, and, yeah, when, when this bot, which had been trained, you know, which had all of the benefit of this learning of the algorithm was then pitted against a human in conversation. So they had a panel of people watching either two humans talking and responding Mm. to one another or a human and this bot responding to one another and the general consensus was that this bot is responding in just as natural a way as a human does it has learned to mimic human facial expressions in conversation pretty much perfectly could people people tell like so if we just listen to it could you could you tell well, I don't think it was... Oh, that's a good question. My understanding mm. is it wasn't a lot of talking. It was just the facial expressions. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. No, well, what they were saying, I think the animation at this point is fairly basic, but the the, the kind of essence of the expressions mm. was so closely mimicking what humans actually do that these people were saying, wow, you've actually there is, done this. There, quite seriously, there is, there is a role for a bot that 
just listens. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it looks like it cares. It could make yeah. a lot of money. Imagine that. The yeah. perfect deep listening yeah. nod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> never intervenes, never comments. Just nods politely, doesn't try to fix anything for you, just hears what you've got to say. Because I, st- I still have bad memories. Chris, you and I will split it 50-50, yeah. 50, okay? Sure. I, I still have bad memories of playing Donkey Kong. And Kong, he, he clearly was mocking me. I remember yeah, those, I, facial, those facial expressions were like... Screw you, Bella. Yeah, that's right. I'm throwing barrels and I'm enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. Right? You so might this want, is yeah. the next step. Yeah. You might want to let that go, actually. <laughs> yeah. For your own I sake. <laughs> How long are we talking, Shane? Since it's 40 years. Anyway, uh, <laughs> hey, it's back now. People love those games now. They're, yeah, they're and we huge. still have our original, do you? We've still got the original, yeah. which my mum the... put in storage all those years ago and I thankfully know. took the batteries out. Yeah. Um, they're yeah, worth a bit of cash. I know. Yeah. I've got a copy. I've got a uh, you know that little stand-up Galaxian game. Yeah, I've got yeah. that working really? order. Played really? it the other day about well, not the other day, about a year ago. And uh, <laughs> that was another day. And I was thinking, Jesus is crap, but it's awesome. You know, <laughs> exactly. it's, just, yeah. it's retro, but awesome, loved it, right? Loved it. And at some stage, I'm going to exchange it for a house. Yeah, you will. Yeah. So maybe, a very for the record, small for the house. record, I'm looking forward to the day that I'm retro awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm rapidly running out of being in working order. <laughs> <laughs> we should take your batteries out to preserve yeah, you. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yes. Anyway, so yes, yeah, so Good Uncanny stuff. Valley perhaps is uh, being severely mm. challenged at this point. So it's, it's a question of how far is this going to go and, and what to what uses is it going to be put, obviously. Well, certainly if you if you want to do sort of at-distance healthcare using automation and AI rather than yep. a person, yep. I, I want someone who's got some empathy yes, at the other absolutely. end. absolutely. And empathy is one of the key things in, in healthcare. And, yep. and if, you, if you have that, even mm. if it's an AI, yep. then you've just jumped ahead by quite a margin. I think yeah. that's one of the, the keys. Yeah, and it turns out that we all, there is very strong agreement among human people of what empathy looks like. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, we can actually mimic this face that looks empathic. Yeah. Speaking of empathic, Chris KP, what do you got for us? Uh, well, <laughs> I, there's always a segue. Interesting segue, There's always, yeah, there's I always am, one. I am empathic. You um, are. It's, <laughs> I'm so glad you noticed that. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm not going to go if there. If you were, you'd know I'd be hurrying you on right now. <laughs> I know, I know, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, the, I always wanted to draw people's attention to the fact that uh, recently the International Astronomical Union, the IAU, uh, recognised 14 features on the surface of Pluto. Oh, yeah, that one Thank they no longer recognise as a planet. Thank yeah, yeah, Pluto yeah. is getting well, they, some credit. Well, this is the great thing. So they're not, if, if they were the international, you know, planetary union, then that's Ooh, not added. Out of yeah. their area, man. Yep. But yep. no, no, no. Anything in the astronomy <laughs> sphere, they can have, yeah. Um, I guess. I don't know whether they changed their name recently to do that. Anyway, so, look, there's, there's 14 <laughs> things, and they're actually... The thing that I found most interesting is that you read through these and you learn a lot more about Pluto because you're like, I didn't know there was a thing, you know, or whatever else. So you learn a lot of that mm. stuff. Um, but there's a couple that, that jump out at me. One that jumps out at me straight away um, is, is the Bernie Crater. And the Bernie Crater was named after Venetia Bernie, who, as an 11-year-old schoolgirl, suggested the name Pluto for this planet. Oh, nice. Um, Yeah. Um, And later she went on to teach mathematics and economics. But mathematics. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Nice. Yeah, so I thought that was cool. But the one that jumped out at me more than anything um, was the jungle fossae, which are basically features on the surface of of Pluto. But they're named, uh, they're, they're sort of these sort of depressional you know, rock features, I suppose, named after three beings which feature in the Yongul, um, uh, uh, you know, traditional Earth development, you know, mm. or, or terraformation mm. stories, because they were the guys that actually came from the, from the world of the dead, the island of the dead, to the surface and actually started making, you know, the land Stuff. as we know it. Yeah, yeah, so Australia's actually got a mention in terms of um, this feature. And there's loads and loads of them. So I, w- I would recommend people look them up because mm. you learn a lot about 
efforts to explore space mm. and also just connections to to earth there's there's you know there's traditional inuit uh, references there as well um as well as a traditional sort of you know greek and roman mythology mm. stuff so it's yeah mm. it's um it's really quite cool and sputnik got a uh, got did. a guernsey i saw in quite did. a big one I think. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, the Sputnik Planitia. Yeah, that's, that's big. A large plane. That's big, does a large sound, plane. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing there, but no. big. <laughs> large plane on a, once was, on a once was planet in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, that's yeah. big. <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, but that's good. Uh, but people, you know, hopefully, as you say, people look up these names and go, what what was that about? Yeah, you it's kind of cool. Um, it sounds like it, a yeah. very fun process. Well, this Deciding is what to call all these they, things. You get the feeling when I'm reading through it that they could... I don't, look, I wasn't there, surprisingly. Um, but I, <laughs> They I get, didn't invite you? I don't know. I, I get a lot of emails. And they realise how empathic you are. You're <laughs> exactly. the perfect person in the I, would room. Been, I would have been the glue. <laughs> um, I get the feeling that, that, that they could have taken a boring path. Yeah. But somewhere mm. on the way they didn't. And I, yeah. I think we should be pleased about that. There's yeah. a little sense yeah. of gentle warmth that they didn't. They decided to make it interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, look, I'm very excited this week and I'm also a little bit sad. Um, excited because tomorrow night I get to give a, a astronomy talk at a, at a nearby high school, uh, which I just love doing that for the kids. It's fantastic. But I also, because, because I'm doing that, I, I get to talk about the fact that we've just crossed over the 40th anniversary of um, Voyager. Oh, yes. From its launch. Yes. And we're clocking 20 years for the Cassini probe around Saturn, which, mind you, has about five days left before it gets <laughs> in. So cool. You know, it's, it's, it's in its last dying rest, and they're going to you know, crash it into Saturn. And there's some great animations in that, um, on the mm. NASA website, and that's really worth going. I've shared a few of them on our Facebook site, but you know, if you haven't seen them there, check out nasa.gov. They've got some great animations of what's going to happen this week. And I think this is, you know, it, it's 20 years, well, not 20 years of gathering data, but, you know, about 12 years, I think, or eight, 12 years of gathering data because it took about seven or eight years to get yeah. there. Um, this thing's a bus, right? It's huge. It dropped the, the Huygens probe into um, into Titan. You know, it was the first time we'd sort of done something like that. It's just, it's been amazing. So it's it's sort of a, it's a bittersweet, but it's, um, mm. if you look back at the, the amount of data that Cassini has bought, it's just extraordinary, yeah, it just absolutely extraordinary. So we're, you know, we're crossing the, the threshold of 40 years for Voyager. Um, we've just crossed, you know, we're at 20 years for Cassini and it's ending its life. It's the 51st anniversary of Star Trek. That stuff there too for me. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you got to bring yeah. it all together. Um, all these mm. things happening it's it's really um it's really a great time for solar system exploration in my what, view. What fascinates me is all the things that have changed on Earth in the time that they've oh, yeah. been up yeah. there. You know, like when we sent them off, Mobile things phones. were very different here. 40, and 40 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 40, 40 it's years. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's funny, um I saw some Something the other day, actually, someone was saying that you know the the little um, the keyless entry you have in your car has more computing yes. power yep. than Voyager. Yeah, and, and I, yeah, I, we can I, still get signals from it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I still have trouble opening my car. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, how is it that this thing can be beyond the yes. orbit of Pluto, and yet when I'm three feet from my car, <laughs> think about that, people. It may just be because you're getting interference from Voyager. That's right. <laughs> Either that. Or as I get older, I bring this one out more and more often. They don't make them like they used to. Oh, Shane, don't do that to yourself. Anyway, uh, but yeah, it's it's interesting to think of, as you say, just what's changed. And... Mm. Um, and even just in terms of cameras and so forth. I mean, yeah. if you could put your mobile phone camera on Voyager, yeah, wow. oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> How much better would that picture of Uranus be? Because the only one we've got is pretty crap. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah. yeah, it is. We're really not got a good one. Three. Triple.
In the studio with us now is Associate Professor Connor Hogan. He's from the La Trobe Institute for Molecular Science at La Trobe University. Connor, welcome to Triple R. It's good to be here, thanks. Now, we... Um, we were just talking about mobile phones a moment ago, and what right. we we would love to shove one on the Voyager probe forty <laughs> years ago. It was kind of a, oh well, can't quite do that. But you're working in particular on the use of these devices to do a lot more than what they're currently slated to do. Mm. Can you give us a, a bit of an idea first of all of what what aspects of the technology sort of lend themselves to this expansion of of you know roles of of the phones? Okay, so what what we're trying to do is we're trying to use mobile phones for essentially for purposes for which they were never intended, um, uh, essentially for measuring concentrations of molecules and identities mm-hmm. of molecules. So the idea behind that and why we first got into this was because we were looking for ways to reduce the complexity and the cost of molecular measurement. And molecular measurement is important for a whole range of things, as mm-hmm. you know, from medical diagnostics to health testing to um, environmental testing and things mm-hmm. like that. And... The idea behind it was that if you could reduce the cost and complexity, you could make these types of technologies available to many, many more types of people, many, many more, <coughs> excuse me, people uh, throughout the world. Mm. So let's first of all talk about, because my suspicion is here, there is stuff that's in the phone you're going to use, but then stuff that you have to add on to the phone to make it usable. So first of all, what's in the phone that is usable in this context of molecular sort of identification and so forth? Okay, so... Um, Mobile phone-based sensing is a kind of an emerging area, actually, in my field, and there's a lot of people working on it. And I guess what kind of distinguishes our work from other people's is that we are trying to use as much as possible just the phone. So absolutely, you know, minimize any other thing you need. Mm. Uh, So there's a lot of new research out there about little gadgets that you might latch onto your phone and basically your phone acts as sort of a data logger or something like that. But what we're trying to do is bring down the cost to absolute minimal levels by just using the phone. So what we use essentially, so we we have two types of technologies um, in our research. One is using electricity to stimulate light emission and Mm -hmm. that's called electrochemiluminescence. And the other one is just plain old electrochemistry where you use electricity to stimulate uh, a reaction uh, where oxidation or reduction takes place and you can monitor the resulting current. So we've kind of two technologies based around those two concepts. And in both cases, we've found ways of using essentially just the phone, just what's in the phone without any external gadgetry involved. So, so I, I always have the image here that the only thing really being used is the camera, but that's not what you're talking mm-hmm. about here. You're talking about the, the, the processor and all the other bits and pieces of the phone. It's a, it's a battery. I mean, we're not just talking about the camera here. In fact, it sounds like that's the least of your um, that, concerns. That's, that's true, actually, yes. Yeah. So in the case of the electrochemiluminescence technology, we use the audio output of the phone to perform ele- to do electrochemistry, to affect um, oxidation or reduction of molecules. So how do you, you got to... Wow, yeah, yeah, that's you, awesome. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> do you, sorry, that's, okay. no, that's awesome. Yeah, back the audio truck up. How do you do that? <laughs> yeah. okay. Is it a particular band? Uh, not, not really, no. What, 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 <laughs> oh, there's a niche market. Yeah. But I, actually, interestingly, the very first experiment we did when we were testing this technology, um, we, we used ACDCs. Yeah, uh, of course. A, a yeah. song by ACDC, and yeah. that was one that worked. Because uh, I, I, my, my understanding is that, um, you know, Bananarama can make things oxidise. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I heard. 
could be right. Nice. So, so how do you, how do you do that? So, explain. In all seriousness, how do you actually use the sound from the phone to work on okay, that chemical process? So, um, we're not actually using the sound. What we do is we play a sound on the phone. Uh, but of course, when you play a sound on the phone and you connect it into your audio jack, what comes out is a voltage, mm-hmm. and the voltage goes into your earbuds. Yep. And there's a little a little uh, 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 speaker in there. So we chop off the little speakers and we just use the voltage. Right. And of course, then by playing the type of sound that you want to play, and that could be ACDC or it could be a square wave or a sine wave or whatever, mm-hmm. you get. Uh, great finesse and great, great control over the voltage that you're applying to those molecules. So, yeah. for example, when mm. we apply a certain type of excitation, potential excitation, voltage excitation, we can stimulate certain types of molecules into emitting light. And in one of our technologies, for example, what we do is we have an app that does that with the audio. It controls the audio to do that and simultaneously runs a little video mm. and then measures each frame of that video for the pixel intensity, which is like measuring the light emission, yeah, yeah. and gives you a number at the end. Wow. And it's as simple as that. Uh, I mean, one way to think of this, I, I suppose, I, I, I you know, have these vague memories from when I was you know, in the lab environment, you know, in chemistry, which I tried to get rid of as quick as possible when I was in the <laughs> you know, physics guy, you know, it's like, cooking. Um, but anyway. <laughs> How to be offensive. I know, I know. But, you know, you love the chemist, though, love the chemist. But, um, but this is... If you think back to to those days where you had a, a large computer running some kind of voltage supply, et cetera, et cetera, I mean, this is really just the shrunk down, modernised, super fast by comparison version of what those experiments were. Yeah, in a way, it's it's uh, it's what you might call a hack. So, mm. so we've got an instrument in our lab called a potentiostat, yep. and it does that. It applies a voltage, it measures a current, and it can measure light emission as well, and things like that. But it costs twenty grand. And yeah. what we've done is we've found a way of using the mobile phone to do exactly the same thing. Not, you know, I'm not going to say it's as good as the $20,000 instrument, but it's in your back pocket. Yeah, and for, for probably, I always say with these things, for 90 to 95% of experiments, it's probably enough. Is, yes. that, is that true? A- absolutely. Um, you know, a measurement should be fit for purpose. Mm. And... The fact, and there's other aspects of it as well. It's a mobile phone, so it's connected to the web. Yeah. It's connected to the mm. cloud. So this is going to enable concepts like mHealth, eHealth, all of those cloud-connected concepts, um, you know, sensing, crowd-based sensing, a, a whole range of concepts that wouldn't have been previously available. Mm. turns out when you bring down the cost of making a chemical measurement down to extremely low levels, which is what this does, a whole range of different types of applications become possible. Mm. Connor, obviously the advantage of this is that you can hand part of the, of the, of the data gathering in the hands of the patient. You can hand it over to someone else to, to do themselves. How difficult is it to get the algorithms or the interfaces um, tight enough so that that person isn't going to get it wrong? Mm. That's a very good question. So Part of this, so, so some of the applications we're working on are environmental sensing. Uh, for example, we have one for measuring lead in water, mm. things like that. But you're right, some of the applications we're working on involve uh, health testing um, and possibly even diagnosing disease, looking for early diagnosis of mm. disease. So I would imagine in a concept like that, you would not go into a doctor and he would not test you with a mobile phone. <laughs> you, this, this, you know, the, the regular... Uh, testing that's done in a pathology lab would not be replaced by this. Yeah, sure. It would augment it. Right. So it, because it's so low cost and so easy, and because it's cloud-based, 
it means that it can be done much more frequently and mm, the results okay. can come much more quickly. Now, even though the accuracy of the measurement might be a little bit less or something like that, if you're doing it a lot more frequently, you know, you can yeah. interpret it in yeah, different yeah. ways. Mm. In, in terms of um, the calibration of mm. these things, because uh, I think people get caught up a bit in this, in that you know, every one of our phones will be slightly different because they weren't designed to do this sort of job. So the That's voltage right. might be slightly different depending on what mm. app, app you use and so That's forth. Right. But in terms of if I'm using my phone all the time, I've always got the same systemic errors in there from the calibration of my phone. I mean, how much can you play with that, utilise that? Is there, is there a way to sort of use the data itself to essentially self-calibrate these, these devices? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And that's, that's uh, an issue with all sensing concepts. Mm. Um, and there's a few ways around it. The, the main approach that we take is to have the calibration in the chemistry. So, for example, if we're doing an electrochemical measurement of uh, species X, we will have a, a standard molecule in the same sensor uh, strip that will be measured simultaneously or mm. sequentially. And based on the signal that that gives, we use that as an internal calibration. Yeah. So I'm imagining that one of the uh, most exciting ways of applying this incredible repurposing that I had no idea about, it's fantastic, will be to help people in, you know, in remote areas who can't just rock up to their doctor or their hospital and say, hey, can you test me for this? So are there diseases that we all know about that you have... Um, you can imagine being able to, to identify using these techniques? Absolutely, yeah. So, in fact, what motivated this research at the very start was this disparity between health test, healthcare spending in between, say, the developed world and the developing world mm. uh, and the fact that somebody in Sierra Leone might see a doctor once in his lifetime. We yep. see them every month or something mm. like that. So... Um, healthcare testing, it takes on a whole different meaning in that context. So uh, one, th one, for example, application we're working on is uh, for cholera toxin. Mm. Um, and it's actually, that's more of a, an environmental testing. But if you can, if you look back at any of the major disasters that have happened over the last 10 years, uh, the major cause of death following those has not been the earthquake or the flood or whatever. It's been no, cholera. It's cholera, yeah. yeah. Because yeah. Basically, your poo gets mixed with your drinking water. That's a bad <laughs> habit, really. <laughs> Ill-advised, folks. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but <clears throat> in that context, cholera kills many, many more people after mm. the, the, the disaster than the original disaster does. Now, there's ways of testing cholera by taking a sample of the water and bringing it into the lab, and you'll get a perfect result. There's a very cheap way that involves a little test strip um, that you can do in the field, but that gives a very inaccurate result. Mm -hmm. We think with a mobile phone-based testing system, based on our platform, we could have one that's almost as good as the lab-based one, but you could do it with your mm. mobile phone in the field, mm. stick it, in, put the water sample in, should I drink this or not? Fantastic. Yeah. Look, it's it's really interesting stuff, and there's been there's been little bits and pieces of this around, but it's good to see that you guys are actually working on this solidly as a as a team and as a project, because I think getting getting very specific 
about what these things can do is fantastic. Connor, thanks so much for chatting to us, and um, I'm sure we'll get you in again at some stage just to talk about where this has gone and, and what some of these applications are and you know wh- where they're being used, which is the most exciting thing. Thanks for chatting to us. Thank you very much. Associate Professor Connor Hogan is from the La Trobe Institute for Molecular Science at La Trobe University. You are listening to 3RRR. In the studio with us now we have Dr Jeremy Silver and Associate Professor Ed Newbigin, who are both from the Pollen Count Group at the University of Melbourne. Jeremy, Ed, welcome to RRR. Thank you. Great being here. Now, uh, we've had you on before, Ed. Mm -hmm. Uh, We might start with you. The Pollen Count Group, you guys have been around for ages doing this, and people I I think people take it for granted. (laughs) Tell us us a bit about the group, how it's changed over the last five years or so. So the pollen count, uh, actually the pollen counting in, in Melbourne has been going on since the 30s. There you go. So it hasn't always been done at Melbourne University, but there's been various people who've got, in Melbourne, who've got interested in it. And mm. I, I guess that reflects uh, the fact that we've got a bunch of scientists in the city, and it also reflects that we've got a problem with hay fever. Mm. Uh, uh, since the 90s, it was run out of what used to be called the School of Botany by Professor Bruce Knox, Mm -hmm. uh, and he died in 96, I think, uh, and I took it over after that. So mostly run as an engagement activity. So I've been doing it, I think this will be my 20th year of doing it, uh, and we've got data going back to 91. uh, And I think, as Jeremy will tell you uh, later on in the interview, uh, that long-term data set is proving to be immensely mm. valuable. Mm. So we've got uh, pollen counts for Melbourne measured at Melbourne University from uh, 1st of October to the 31st of December, which has almost become the official pollen season for yeah, Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's just set up for convenience purposes, but uh, it's now the official pollen season uh, going back to 91. Now, now just on that, is mm. is that period going to have to change as our climate shifts? And if so, what does that mean for that long-term data where you'll have a gap where you start bringing in the mm. months either side of that? Yeah, fair question, Shane. Um, there's a lot of things which influence the pollen count, but when I say the pollen count, there's a, a lot of different types of pollen in the air. In fact, I've got a project at the moment with uh, one of my students, uh, which is sequencing Melbourne's air. Mm. So uh, it's not one of those things you typically think of. You can get air. It's not one of those things you typically think you can get DNA sequencing out of, but we can actually sequence the air. And we've, we'll find out a lot more about what's in the air uh, when his, PhD, his, his master's project concludes. But... What we mostly count is grass pollen because that's the major outdoor allergen in Melbourne. Uh, And there's a lot of things which will influence grass. Uh, One of the big influences on how much grass pollen we're getting into Melbourne is the fact that Melbourne is growing. So that urban fringe is extending into Mm. the pasture grass areas which are on the outskirts of the city. So our grass pollen is coming in. There's grazing lands out there to the west and north of Melbourne. Uh, the urban fringe is expanding and taking up that pasture land which is mm. on the fringe. So we are, uh, we've got a declining trend in how much grass pollen we're measuring in Melbourne. It still has an impact. Mm. It still has a, a powerful impact on hay fever and asthma, uh, but we're getting less of it, and that's mostly due to changes in land use. There may well be a climate change signal in there, but whether you'll be able to see that against the change, yeah. other types of changes in the landscape, uh, I don't know. Now, now, just in terms of the the count itself, mm-hmm. is this still done manually? Have you got some poor student in there who's you know <laughs> looking down at ninety seven, ninety eight, you know, or, or is it done with like particle counters and that now? I mean, what's what what's the process? 
the process is still a manual process. I love it. Um, <laughs> it's character building. And it works. Yeah. And uh, I have to introduce every year when we're training up new students, I have to introduce them to a piece of technology which they will not have encountered, and that is clockwork. <laughs> <laughs> so there is still a part of the Melbourne Pollen Count which relies upon a key which we have to manually wind up the clockwork motor, and if we lose that key... Oh, just <laughs> terrible things. The yeah, yeah. cat would not function any longer. So it is uh, the equipment has not changed in the 30 years it's been. The, the, we have the same machine doing that job, which tells you about. Uh, you were talking about the reliability yeah, yeah, of Voyager yeah. before. Yeah, and, uh, no, they don't make them like that, they used to. They don't make them like they used to. <laughs> so, and believe it or not, that's the state of the art. Yeah. Oh, is it really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 People, so, people talk about it as being the gold standard. Yeah, and if you go back and look at the history of gold standards, uh, most economies dropped gold standards. A long <laughs> yeah, time ago. it's better than the gold standards. <laughs> it's better. It's better. Now, now, Jeremy, you you're a statistician, so you're a uh, mathematician, physicist uh, in terms of background. What what do you do in this process? Because I can imagine there's a huge element of atmospheric physics and so forth involved in giving out the appropriate information and using the information these guys collect. Yeah, so I've been looking at the history of well, the the pollen time series that goes back to 1991 mm-hmm. and uh, mapping that up against the weather records and um, uh, also uh, the um, uh, de-identified health records, so a number of um, patients presenting to um, uh, public hospitals around Melbourne um, mm. and also admitted to public hospitals around Melbourne, um, uh total number per day um so there's uh, an element of epidemiology in there um and also uh you can as you say you you can you can look at it in terms of the physics and Mm. and think about um uh if we're if we're going to make some assumptions about where it's being uh where it's originating from uh how how does it get blown about uh by the wind Mm. and in in terms of with uh, in particular the epidemiology and so forth and looking at that when we when we think back to that thunderstorm atmosphere event which occurred i mean this is a, one of these amazing terms that people you know thunderstorm atmosphere stuff mm-hmm. is it is um thunderstorm atmosphere thunderstorm asthma um but how unusual was that particular day in the, in the sort of atmospheric sense and what was going on because obviously it had a big effect but was it that unusual or was it just over a protracted period? What, I mean, what was special about that? Well, uh, in a way, in, in terms of the, the, the health outcomes, it was, uh, to some extent, the, the perfect storm. Mm. Um, it was uh, an extreme pollen day. Um, so, uh, and it was the first uh, very hot day, well, the first hot day of, of spring 2016. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, a very powerful uh, thunderstorm and gust front um, pushed through from from west to east, um, and uh, there were uh, very very strong wind gusts uh, at the front. Hmm. Um, so what make uh, what makes this thunderstorm special? Uh, to be honest, there there are certain things that are that are not fully understood yet, and um, I'm I'm not a meteorologist, mm. um, and we're working with with, uh, with the bureau with the bureau. Yeah, yeah. And and the the pollen itself. I mean, it, the the pollen in that case breaks up, doesn't it? So mm. in the, in the case where we we had that big 
problem with people who, who were developing asthma and never had it before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this wasn't just normal pollen grains that make no. people hay feverish. This was something different, right? Yeah. So uh, it's probably useful for listeners to understand that hay fever and asthma are related conditions, mm. and we use the same types of drugs to treat them. Mm. So it's antihistamines and corticosteroids Steroids, and so on yep. to treat both hay fever and asthma, and it's where we're having the allergic reaction, which varies for... Uh, hay fever, it's obviously uh, uh, upper part of the respiratory yep. system, yep. so the nasal mucosa and so on, and that and it is an interaction with intact pollen grains. For asthma, so we have to go through a fragmentation process because to get things down to the small passageways of the lungs, you need to be a very much smaller particle, so average pollen grain will be 20, 30 microns in size. Mm. To get down to the lungs, you need to be less than five microns, two right. and a half microns, right, so quite different. a lot smaller. So there has to be fragmentation going on, yep. clearly, for asthma to occur, and any type of asthma to be right. associated with. And that's where this thunderstorm activity mm. somehow allowed that yeah. fragmentation to occur and get yeah. it down deep. So there are ideas about how that process occurs, uh, but I'd say um, overall we have a very poor understanding mm. of it. And one of the things which will be done over the next few years, working with the Bureau of Meteorology people like... Jeremy and other uh, collaborators are, um, at other universities will be, to CSIRO included, will be to try and understand, to try and find a way of mimicking it. But mm -hmm. Jeremy's data about uh, the history of thunderstorm asthma in Melbourne, we've had a lot of past events and yep. we've had probably, we get one of these sort of events every five years or so. So the last big one was back in 2010 and we've certainly had a, a number of other events in mm. the past. Mm. Interesting. That was kind of what I was going to ask. So notwithstanding that this was, as you say, something of a perfect storm, if it's happened before and it happens elsewhere, to what extent can we predict it or at least predict the severity of it? Do you want to take that, Jeremy? Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think it's difficult to predict the severity. Mm -hmm. um, we, the, the models that, the, uh, that we've been developing, um, we, we think will predict the the big ones um but there's also a risk of uh some false positives mm -hmm. and this is um kind of inevitable because there's a lot of noise in the data and there are still factors that are not under not fully understood mm. are, you, are you guys you're getting asked a lot for this for predictions are people sort of saying you know well, well that's, that's where i kind of wanted to go like yeah. with so you have the one pollen count at Melbourne Uni. Yep. Yeah. Um, the, the Bureau has, you know, people collecting, you know, meteorological data Ooh. across mm. the country. Absolutely. How is it that we haven't sort of integrated what you guys are doing? And I'm sure the answer to this is money. But, um, <laughs> you know, it seems to me as though it would be appropriate to have multiple sites, not just Melbourne, mm. but especially, as you say, with the yeah. urban um, fringe moving so rapidly, it, it would seem as though having multiple sites, multiple locations, being able to get a much bigger, you know, get Jeremy some more data from mm. more than one data point in terms of location. Mm. Is that something that you're looking to do? To yeah, absolutely. So as a result of uh, last year's storm, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Victorian State Government Department of Health and Human Services, uh, uh, through Minister uh, Hennessy, mm -hmm. uh, announced inquiries into uh, the way of best responding. So amongst the consequences of last year's event was that there was a, the ambulance system uh, struggled to cope mm, with yeah. it. This was the largest single 
uh, emergency incident in Victoria's history. Mm. And over a protracted period, I understand, it's a problem. Yeah, so, so it didn't it stop after couple, an hour. That's right. It lasted, just kept going for a couple of days. It a couple of days. Of days. Yeah. Uh, certainly the, the scale-up was massive but mm. not centralised. So mm. you might have expected... Mm. You might have looked at past events. It would be uh, a forest fire yeah, yeah, right yeah. here. We've got to respond to that yeah. thing there. This Sudden was, few uh, hours and then it's done. Yeah. And, yeah. and this was an event which happened across the state. It wasn't yep. just Melbourne, yep. so we get thunderstorm, asthma, people were affected across the state. Wow. Mm. Uh, and I'm told that every single ambulance was on the road that night. Yeah. So the, yeah. they had, and over time, the uh, ambulance service managed to cope, find ways of coping with the situation, but the, certainly a review has been very helpful as to how to... Uh, how to respond more appropriately to these very yeah. infrequent but quite severe, severe events uh, where there isn't a particular place where it's all happening. Hmm. Uh, so there will be changes to the health, uh, the ambulance system, the types of messaging which are going out to hmm. that, uh, the ways in which uh, hospitals respond because they yeah. were clearly overwhelmed. There was probably about hmm. 10,000 people presented to emergency departments in yeah. Melbourne it's extraordinary. Night, yeah, uh, and it, they all had the same thing. Yeah. Well, um, look, the work you guys do is extraordinary and it's something that I think um, people forget where it's coming from, mm. so um, great that you've taken it up for so many years, Ed, and yeah. hopefully for a long time further, and I, I do hope that you get the support to actually expand this service in a, in a logical way well, across we're, other we're supposed to be bringing other locations. five new pollen monitoring Fan- sites over Victoria this year. Fantastic. Ed, Jeremy, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us and, and good luck with this work. Okay. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Jeremy Silver and Associate Professor Ed Newbigin uh, from the Pollen Count Group at the University of Melbourne doing an important service. Three. Triple. Uh, you are listening to Triple R here. I'm Dr. Shane, and in the studio with us now is Rosemary Millen. She's a PhD candidate at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre at the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre and also at St Vincent's Hospital. Rosemary, welcome to Triple R. Thank you so much for having me here. Now, you work in this amazing area, which I've been saying for a while, within 20 years, will deal with cancer flat out, um, <laughs> which is sort of, I guess, immunotherapies and the immune system and so yep. forth. So first of all, why don't we just start to bring, bring people up to speed on what normally happens with the odd cancer cell here and there in the body um, for someone who's just normally healthy? I mean, what what's going on there? That's a great question, Shane. So the immune system is constantly detecting cancer cells. So we know that cancer cells are an outgrowth of normal cells Mm -hmm. and the immune system does constantly detect this. So this is probably happening in all of our bodies right now. Um, But the immune system have these mechanisms that can pick that up. And so now immunotherapies are using those mechanisms to target uh, the immune cells to respond to cancer. So so the, the immediate question then is, how do we end up with cancer? I mean, if the immune system... So let me back that up. Is this a problem that the immune system is having, that it's failing to do its job, or is this the cancer part doing more than the immune system can handle? I mean, we, or is it both? I mean, what's going on in the body? It's it's both. So it can be either way. So it can be the tumour cells that are going through these um, mechanisms that keep dividing and proliferating, And it's also the fact that the immune system is being shut down or or turned off by the tumour cells. So this is what uh, these therapies are targeting. Right. So so the the immune system being shut off, though, is that for everything or just for these cells? I mean, are these 
cancer cells smart enough to sort of say to the immune system, you know, you keep fighting the flu. <laughs> I'm okay with that, but but don't touch me. I mean, is that is that? Yeah, so not to anthropomorphise at all. Wow. Oh, no, is, that, is that is that what's is that what, is it that specific? So we we do talk about the immune cells can actually play two roles in the tumour microenvironment, um, and they can sometimes help the tumour grow. Or they can do the opposite and they can stop the tumour from growing. Mm. So this happens in a localised microenvironment, um, but when you have other infections in the body, the immune cells are still responding to that as well. Mm. How many, um, just a side question, but how many things are our immune system dealing with on a, on a daily <laughs> basis? Is, oh, it, is it a few, like two or three, or is it like hundreds? I would say hundreds. Hundreds, really? Yes, so Because often... You, you it'd people, have to be, surely. Yeah. Yes. But you hear people talk about, you know, um, I, I can't sort of fight that off because I've got this. Mm. And I think, yeah. yeah, but if it's hundreds... Yep. You can. Yes. Is that, is that, is that fair? <laughs> yeah, I think it, that, that's a very fair point, Shane. So um, the immune system is very clever mm. and um, it has a mind of its own, essentially, which is quite cool. Mm. So let's talk about the therapies in terms of um, cancer and what, what you can and cannot do because it, it seems as though we are shifting it, you know, over the last few years from the sort of standard surgical and chemotherapy model to one of quite sort of different level of sophistication. I mean, what, what is the, the sort of norm today in terms of these immunotherapies? You're very right, Shane. So in the past, there have been three main pillars for cancer treatment, so surgery, chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And we know that chemotherapy obviously targets other healthy cells mm. as well as the tumour cells. So the fourth pillar of cancer therapy is now immunotherapy. And uh, immunotherapy can target these immune checkpoints, which are pathways um, that are used by the immune system to actually dampen the immune response. So when there is an infection, immune cells respond to it yep. and um, you have to shut that off because otherwise that inevitably will cause damage uh, to the surrounding cells. Right. So one of these mechanisms uh, that we use is called the program cell death 1 receptor or PD-1. So this is expressed on immune cells and um, the tumour can actually... Uh, express the ligand for this so that binds to the pd1 on the immune cell and that stops the immune cell from mounting a response against the tumor cell okay so the, the tumors have got this uh, it, it seems like um an amazing response given i've always thought of the cancer as an error you know like it's a it's a bad thing mm. and yet somehow it's developed this mm. highly advantageous adaptation to not only be a mistake but to be a mistake that's bloody good at keeping itself alive. It just doesn't seem to make sense, <laughs> yes, does it? I mean, that's right. So it actually evades the immune system mm. by doing this. So it can start expressing these ligands, which shut down that immune response, and the immune cells are no longer able to attack the immune system, uh, the tumour cells, sorry. I'm, I'm wondering, is there anything that happens over time or in particular environments that changes how well or changes the functioning of our immune system in terms of cancer? Or is it just this is the system you've got, it does what it can? Yeah, I mean, it's always um, dynamic, right? So, so it will keep changing. Mm -hmm. um, and now we're looking into 
the potential of resistance to these immunotherapies because, as we've seen with cancer therapies, targeted molecular therapies which target the tumour cells, um, they can start building resistance yeah. to um, these therapies. And, and now we're starting to think of that in the context of these immunotherapies because immunotherapies uh, just came out in, in 2012, mm. so very recent. Yeah, yeah. Um, and not only are there these inhibitors, but we're also looking into other ways where we can stimulate that immune response. And also um, engineer some of these immune cells. This is called adoptive T-cell therapy where we can take patients' immune cells, engineer them ex vivo, and then reintroduce them to the patient uh, and hopefully those cells can fight off the tumour cells. That's cool stuff. Isn't now, that amazing? Let, let's <laughs> let's talk specifically for a couple of minutes about your PhD because um, you're partway through. What are, you, what are you up to? So I'm investigating a new kind of immune cell called a mate cell. So mate is spelt M-A-I-T and this stands for mucosal associated invariant T-cells. So, great, great name. <laughs> yes, yeah, it really catches you. So a lot of my talks are often, are you my mate? Um, because nice. I'm trying to understand if mate cells are friends or foe of the tumour. So are they helping the tumour or are they, in fact, uh, shutting down the response? And my PhD is really looking at this in the context of metastatic colorectal cancer. So that's when the tumour spreads from the colon to the liver. And the liver is the most common site of this spread. Um, and importantly, they, these mate cells are really abundant or there are lots of these mate cells in the liver, which is mm. why we want to look at them. So I was going to take you back through some Year 12 biology textbook. <laughs> <laughs> so there are two arms of the immune system. There's the innate arm, and this is the rapid response to foreign pathogen. We were just talking about mm -hmm. pollen uh, before, and, and that's a kind of rapid response of immune um, cells, and this is a first line of defence. So I wanted to put in a Game of Thrones reference here. <laughs> um, so Excellent. if we think of a got uh, battle scene, um, this is like your archers that are standing there ready to defend against... Um, the oncoming slaughter. Then you have the adaptive arm, and this responds to specific antigens, and this is processed by the immune cells themselves. And this takes longer to generate an immune response, but importantly, it's very specific. This is a second line of defence. Um, and again, if we think of uh, Game of Thrones, um, you have the cytotoxic T-cells, which are the swordsmen, and they're very skilled, so you're Jamie Lannisters or Jon <laughs> Snow. Um, and then you have CD4 helper T-cells. So they actually sit around the battle site and recruit other people in. So mate cells sit between these two arms um, of okay. um, immune response. So they're quite they're innate-like, um, but they also have these adaptive features. So they're a very cool cell, and they're really important in microbial infections, but no one seems hmm. to know their exact role in tumours, mm. so that's why we're yeah. looking well, we're, unfortunately, we're out of time because we could keep, uh, go for a while here because I, I know nothing about biology, as people who are long-term <laughs> listeners to this show know. Um, but it's it's really interesting stuff, Rosemary, and I think, um, as I've said, you know, probably over the last five years on this show, that the interest in, in treating cancer will not only bring about all these all, the, uh, um, all these immune sort of responses that we can 
um, bring to bear, but it will also, I think, help a lot of people with autoimmune diseases as well, because the more you learn about the immune system and how it operates, the better off we'll be. So thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck with the PhD, and um, maybe we'll talk to you again in some time. Thanks for having me. Rosemary Millen is a PhD candidate at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre at the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre and at St Vincent's Hospital. We are out of time, people, so we're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It, Dr Jen. Good Always to have a pleasure. You. Thank you, Shane. Great have a good weekend, you. everyone. Chris KP. Thanks, mate. Go Tigers. Go Tigers. Jeez, they're both. We've got two of them in the studio, <laughs> folks. It's time we hand it over to a, a non-denominational uh, football team loving, I think, actually, they're probably Tigers supporters as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Stay with Triple R. We'll chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.